Hey everyone, you're listening to The Talent Revolution, where we believe that focusing on quality over volume and being different, not better, is the right way to hire the best humans and build stronger teams. To help you do this, I go behind the scenes with forward-thinking recruiters, employer brand experts, and people leaders making a huge difference to their organizations. I'm your host, Tom Hackwell, and in today's episode, I'll be speaking with Arthur Matuszewski, hypergrowth investor and advisor. Arthur studied at Brown University and started his people journey early by founding a babysitting platform called Smart Sitting in 2009, connecting affluent parents and their children with talented folks in an early talent arbitrage play. As a totally obvious next step, he transitioned from babysitting startup to hedge funds by joining Bridgewater Associates in 2011, helping them with a range of initiatives across talent acquisition, organizational design, and so on. After leaving Bridgewater in 2015, he's been helping a number of well-known organizations scale their people rapidly, and I mean rapidly, including taking Wayfair from four to 15,000 in two years and better from 300 to 8,000 in 18 months. These days, Arthur helps build and scale organizations, aligning talent strategy with organizational growth plans for early stage and hyper growth companies. We've got so much to learn from him today across scale, talent strategy, and so on. I'm excited to dig in. Thanks so much for your time today, Arthur. Thanks so much for having me, Tom, and great podcast voice. I appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks very much. There's loads to dig into today, and I think what's really exciting me about this conversation is is just the variety of your experience so far and the cool stuff you're doing today. So lots of ground to cover. I think more though than ever in terms of the guests we have on the podcast and thing, I think your background is super important context for the rest of the conversation we'll have today. So can you just take a couple minutes and kind of give us a slightly more detailed overview of the spiel I just gave, please? Yeah, for sure, Tom. Happy to uh, take it all the way back. So I grew up in Rockaway, Queens, which for those of you that are familiar, a little bit of a suburban urban beach town outside the city. So I always grew up really fascinated by what everyone across the Bay was going off and trudging off to work on. I spent most of college floating around the humanities. So I was fascinated with understanding how people and organizations come to the values that they do. So I started off pretty fluffy in comparative literature and social philosophy and wound up getting uh, towards the other end, towards organizational studies and psychology. As you mentioned, I spent the better part of my time in college starting a babysitting venture. It was 2008, so there was a glut of overeducated and underemployed folks. We would take the Yale art history major to uh, your Upper East Side, Upper West Side family and have your kids uh, accompanied to the Met to talk about antiquities or what have you. So it was a fascinating experience. A lot of it was about finding the right folks uh, that shared the values of the families of the students directly, training people up and supporting families and finding that click. I spent a good bit of time actually working in prisons as well, which was sort of the flip of the societal escalator, if you will, was uh, really interesting to see the life of the mind uh, that happens when you don't have a life of the body and how expanding sort of people's possibilities is a matter of reframing the stories that they tell themselves. So spending a good bit of time bringing faculty from Brown, from other colleges and universities into the prisons. And for me, it was a good way to find myself within the broader schema of Brown, where coming, I felt tremendously out of place, felt like everyone before me had a path to be a banker, a lawyer, a consultant, what have you. And it wasn't until finding a way to bring sort of these vaunted intellectual ideals to bear through the prison that I really found the thing that gave me my passion, which is around bringing opportunity to talent. As a consequence, Bridgewater uh, was a very natural next step of prison and babysitting. Spent the better part of my time at Bridgewater figuring out what made our people successful and how do we find more of them. 
Bridgewater is a fascinating place to begin with. But my larger takeaway from that experience was that cultural strategy follows business strategy. Bridgewater's business strategy was very much around preserving excellence. They had a model and an understanding of how the world works. And the cultural strategy supported that by creating an environment where it was uh, that much more difficult to make mistakes, that much more difficult to get distracted by shiny objects or things that might take us off the path of being uh, truly world-class investors. At the time, Ray was stepping down from day-to-day management and looking to institutionalize his principles-based framework for how to lead the organization. And the biggest paranoia around that, justifiably, was um, how will we get the right people on board? So all of our efforts were geared towards finding that one in 10,000. And largely what we discovered is that it's pretty trainable to be able to teach people skills. It's a lot harder to assess and quantify values and abilities. So we spent a lot of time with psychometric studies, cognitive behavioral assessments, and largely trying to match people to different attributes that would be varied depending on if you were a trader, if you were a researcher, if you were an engineer coming in to build our systems logic. And largely that experience had a lot of positive first and second order consequences. I don't think by any means uh, did we crack the code, but we basically got to the equivalent of two good interviews. And what it helped me understand is the broader your funnel, the more you can bring uh, varied types to the table and remove sort of the traditional barriers to entry, be they resumes or professional qualifications. We wound up hiring a lot of former poker players, Magic the Gathering players, entrepreneurs, folks coming from all sorts of different varied professional backgrounds. And a lot of the credit was towards having an open mind around what requirements are and thinking more about people's long-term capability development within the organization rather than you know the nuance of where they're coming from XYZ brand name before. Wound up taking a sharp tack the other way after Bridgewater and spent a little bit of time uh, getting a cannabis venture off the ground in Colorado. That was most certainly a different kind of growth, but it was a fun experience learning how to uh, help a business go from zero to one. We were primarily trying to commercialize technology out of a lab, helping to control uh, feelings. So every time you smoke, ingest, what have you, you get a different psychoactive response. Learned a lot about raising money and that it helps to wear lab coats. Ultimately, it was a bit more of a science project than a startup. Wound up coming back to New York and spent a few years in innovation strategy, helping big companies be less boring. And it was this interesting thing where we were one part product strategy, one part commercial strategy, and we'd go and launch an app for, you know, pick your large uh, legacy insurance company. They'd roll it out to their 10, 20, 30,000 employees and then realize that their employees don't know how to text and interact with customers. And so a lot of uh, the learnings there were that ultimately everything becomes an organizational design and talent and people problem, however you slice it. So we'd spend six to nine months building an app and six to nine months teaching people how to use it. Largely uh, came out of that experience fascinated by this question of how do you really up-level customer experience. I was actually looking to start a call center training and a recruiting firm. Instead, wound up meeting Wayfair, falling in love with the team, uh, with the company, and joined at a really exhilarating time just after IPO to help them scale, as you mentioned, from four to 15,000. The journey at Wayfair was uh, pretty stark. We came in at a time when there was no sourcing team, there was no employer brand, our systems, tools, analytics across the board were relatively basic and had an opportunity to drive our hiring efforts from hiring 250 engineers a quarter to scaling our data science team from you know a couple dozen to a couple hundred to building out our warehouse and sales and ops presence both here and across the EU. 
And the really formative part of that was really looking at talent strategy as growth strategy. So applying all the best principles from measuring our um, cost per click to cost per apply to cost per hire, really getting a granular sense of candidate experience uh, at each stage of the workflow. Really grateful and really enjoyed that experience and then wound up having the privilege to do the same at Better where I joined a little bit earlier, uh, just before Series C. We were about 300 people, and the expectation was to hire about 30 people a month. Very quickly, that became 30 people a week. And better fundamentally was a labor optimization play. Our loan officers would do 60 to 70 loans per month, whereas industry average was six to seven. And in our case, talent was uh, fundamentally a top-line function. The more people we would get, the more productive we could make those people, the more we could serve our customers. And so the journey of building the talent acquisition function as it scaled uh, went from figuring out the supply side, whether it was referrals, whether it was marketing, whether it was driving our sort of ongoing outreach and market presence, all the way to delivery, optimizing our scheduling, optimizing our candidate experience, optimizing each piece of the funnel so we could track where folks are dropping out, where folks uh, needed more uh, love and attention, how we could convert higher and higher quality folks. Uh, we, as you mentioned, scaled pretty substantially in that time. So the shift became uh, much more pronounced on investing in people once they came in. So thinking through things like onboarding and integrations, talent development, creating pathways for internal mobility for our workforce that was 80 to 85% in sales and operations. I'm very grateful for the journey and then have been uh, fortunate to spend the last half year or so investing and advising in a number of earlier stage companies that have been particularly fascinated in thinking through ways that capital and talent can work together to scale companies, particularly as you see um, you know, these mega funds continuing to raise. I think as capital gets cheap, human capital gets expensive. And so we're in a unique moment uh, where as the balance of power shifts, the teams that are actually driving the growth for all these companies have a unique opportunity to take on more of the cap table and ultimately more of the upside. That's awesome, right? So there's so many things to pick apart there and I'll just pause and, and sort of let that experience waft over me for a second. But the a few things, I love how you said that, you know, as capital gets cheap, human capital gets expensive and there's an interesting play to be, to be made there. And we're certainly going to dig into that in a lot of detail later, hopefully. I think I want to try and sort of break today's conversation into chunks because there's some quite disparate sets of experience there, right? Bridgewater, hyper growth, there's some startup environments, the stuff you're doing now and kind of each of those journeys coalescing into one another. If we start by digging into the time at Bridgewater, right? You talked about this kind of one in 10,000 higher. You talked about kind of how that's been relatively formative in terms of your experience. And you also talked about this undertone of like diversity and inclusion or these first steps into this, what I'm going to consider to be diversity and inclusion, moving away from Ivy League, moving away from traditional resume-based screening and things like that. Like keen to understand what that journey looked like in practice, right? So when you joined, were you looking predominantly at the, like the very traditional sources of hiring and that evolved over time or was that already kind of happening before you rocked up? Yeah, for sure. So the interesting thing about focusing on merit is that ultimately, if you if you do it right, you wind up having diversity as a second order consequence rather than as a first order. In our case, you know, historically, particularly for our you know analysts um, and investment uh, track programming, we've historically gone out to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, basically anywhere that was an easy drive away. And there was always this suspicion that hey, we might not be getting all the right alpha in terms of the folks that other people aren't taking bets on. 
as Bridgewater's uh, name and acclaim grew, we were able to you know hire um, the best out of banking, out of consulting, what have you. But we realized that we were largely still going after the same type of talent that everybody was, and that there you know was limited utility in that trade. And so the you know genesis of us setting out to solve our assessment problem was less around hey we're going to explicitly solve for diversity it was let's go find the talent that will uniquely fit us that may not fit other organizations or that other uh, organizations may not have the wherewithal to find so we initially focused on scaling up the process so that we can assess a higher volume of folks against a key set of criteria. For us, it was on the value side, finding people that had the right mix of interpersonal orientation, candor, directness, uh, commitment to personal evolution. And on the ability side, the good mix of high-level conceptual thinking paired with an analytical orientation. So not just the dreamers or philosophers, but those that could build a model to help realize their dreams. As we expanded uh, the funnel and sort of had at least a baseline level of confidence in our assessment, you know, we went out to state schools, we went out to community colleges, we went out to a variety of providers that could show us talent that otherwise we weren't seeing. And so my favorite anecdote from this is the first time we tested this on our intern class, you know, we went out and found someone that had under a 3.0 at University of Michigan. And under our conventional resume sort of base assessment, we wouldn't have even interviewed. As it turned out, he wound up going to uh, UMich because his dad had given him the difference in state tuition and sort of a private tuition to invest in a fund that he'd spent the past four years running instead of going to classes. Ultimately, actually doing pretty poorly uh, for the duration of the internship until we had our uh, final independent research project. And he'd wound up, instead of spending the same time on Bloomberg or Palantir, whatever system um, we were diving into at the time, he wound up spending the time uh, grabbing coffee and talking to um, every Wall Street investor interested in exotic betas and came up with what was, at the time, the most innovative take we'd seen on this emerging investment trend just by virtue of putting in the sweat equity. And the thing that was illuminating about that is it forced us to rethink not just the assessment at the start that helped us bring him in, but our assessment throughout our process um, for determining what does success look like. And ultimately, I think that was a large order takeaway from the Bridgewater experience, which is that we were in a fortunate position to really know what drew success in our environment. And most organizations, when they're coming up with job descriptions or thinking through their performance criteria, are just copy pasting um, what they see in you know your generic product marketing job or your generic customer success job elsewhere, rather than thinking through what's unique about our business, what will drive that competitive differentiation, and what will ultimately enable us to win that won't enable our competitors or others in our space. So again, there's so much there, and and that makes so much sense. So like looking at diversity as a second order benefit rather than the focus of your initiative is awesome and kind of reflects the value of, of that for people who are still considering and on the, the fray about whether they should really invest in doing things that support that initiative. I think you said a lot of things there. And one of the bits that you sort of talk to is the importance of having, I guess, the ability to drive volume through that funnel if you're looking to expand your horizons, right? And so and you talk about assessments and psychometrics and other things as like tools in that chain. You also talk, and you said you're in a fortunate position to kind of codify the values that make sense to you. And you talk about commitment to personal growth and evolution. You talk about kind of being able to implement, not just analyze. All of that makes sense in the context of Bridgewater and the level of maturity you guys already had in organizational design. Two questions. 
One, how do organizations that you talk to today in your current role in sort of an advisory or an investor capacity, how do you help them go on that journey and understand those things about themselves? And secondly, how do you then, once you have codified what that means to you, how are you building assessments to actually test? You know, how are you identifying the validity of the assessments you're putting people through? It's easy to say we want people who have commitment to personal evolution, but your assessment is doing more than asking them if they have a commitment to personal evolution, right? And so what does that look like? For sure. Um, So let me tease those questions apart. I think one is, you know, how do you define values and how do you um, sort of test values? And the second is once you're tested for the values, how do you actually learn and evolve that uh, testing to actually make sure that, you know, you're getting an accurate mark to market. I think on the value side, you know, I think a lot of folks look at value statements as um, sort of marketing collateral, you know, it's ping pong tables and an ayahuasca ceremony or what have you. And fundamentally, when I think of values, I think about strategy. So what is our business trying to achieve? What needs to be true for our business to achieve that? So a lot of the organizations I'm working with tend to be a little bit more consumer facing and recognize that customer experience is a differentiator and they have some mix of values or, you know, at Wayfair, it was suppliers that are, fa- are our family at uh, better. It was, you know, focus on the customer. So whatever permutation of that is true for your organization, the values that go into that need to reflect what is actually winning in that customer experience look like. And so, and so in a lot of cases, for example, at Better, um, for us, it was interpersonal orientation and conscientiousness. There's a lot of details of mortgage files. There's a lot of nuance uh, that for most people can be fairly life-changing, even if day-to-day, if you're doing you know, 60 loan files a month, the details can be rather mundane. So what we learned early on in uh, doing the initial stakeholder interviews, both of our employees and our customers to craft our values and our assessment strategy as a result was that the folks that were already wired to focus on the details that were already predisposed to, you know, having uh, broader social networks to ask about, you know, people's families to make the small talk that helped uh, de-stress and otherwise, you know, intense and harrowing uh, potential conversation were the ones that outperformed. And then it was a matter of figuring out the right mix. And, you know, it's not about the provider. It's not about, you know, I have the magic test. It's about figuring out the test that gets to the values that you care about. We eventually came to validating, you know, the one or two things that we cared about. And then we realized that while we were hiring a lot of folks that would pass our interviews uh, with flying colors, folks were very aligned with. One element that we were missing was a degree of analytical aptitude. As a result, we both implemented more training at the front end to support people in upskilling in that journey. But the second part was actually evaluating that as part of our process and basically installing sort of a low-grade SAT math test. There's no sort of one-size-fits-all um, to solution to it. But as you know, hiring managers, as founders, as uh, leaders of organizations, being real about what does performance look like and what does underperformance look like is sort of the prerequisite, whether you're at Bridgewater or whether you're at a five or 10-person startup. If you can't have a real conversation about what is going well or what's going poorly, then you're fundamentally not going to assess talent well. And so part of it comes from uh, the personal orientation and the self-awareness to recognize that everyone has strengths and weaknesses. And then the derivative part of that is coming to the table with a framework for saying, uh, this is the gap. These are all the ways that we can fill it, whether that's we're going to find more different people, whether that's we're going to bring in you know coaches, trainers, development to help the people we have achieve the goals that we set out. 
the sort of talent flywheel only works if you're um, creating an environment where you can assess performance in real time. Makes perfect sense, right? And as like, I like the notion of the talent flywheel and understanding that conceptually and, and applying that to this process. I think if we try and evolve that a bit, you talked a bit about better, right? And we've we've talked about how you were there. You grew from three hundred to eight thousand ish. We talked about it fundamentally being like a productivity play, right? You're taking that somebody who typically in in the industry is doing six to seven loans a month, they're doing sixty to seventy. There's like two competing sides of this coin that I'm sort of struggling to reconcile, right? So you're going from 300 to 8,000 incredibly quickly, but you're looking for an incredibly productive workforce that can churn out 10 times the normal volume of expectation of the marketplace. When you were digging into this, you also talked about looking at both sides. So like the pre-acquisition piece and talent acquisition and, and, and so on, but then also onboarding, training, ramping up. And you've sort of been touching on that a little as you've been going. How do you kind of balance those books? So are you focusing on as you go from 300 to 1,000 to 5,000 to 8,000, does it become more about lowering the barrier to entry in terms of prerequisite skills and knowledge and increasing the coaching, onboarding, and so on post-hire? Or is the bar remaining the same and you're looking at efficiency through better onboarding? Do you see where I'm coming from? For sure, yeah. And I think this tension between quantity and quality is a funny one. Ultimately, I come from the view where um, a quantity enables quality. You know, the more folks you're able to bring to the funnel, the more you're able to be selective around the folks that ultimately make it through. And so for us, we were focused on both and, you know, driving uh, our volume. Um, we were uh, definitely beneficiaries of, you know, being able to go broad in terms of going remote, of being able to hire across multiple uh, geographies, uh, multiple talent pools. And over time, the more volume we had and the more sample we had to assess performance, the more we could really remove the criteria for determining what qualified and what didn't. And as a result, we were able to be a majority minority organization and to bring uh, folks in from hospitality, from, you know, veterans, parents returning to the workforce and various uh, sort of underrepresented populations, because we were able to um, be very clear on our process, both around what we would hire for and then what we would train for uh, secondarily. You know, we would run all these real time experiments by measuring every stage of the funnel where, for example, um, we used to have a standard um, sort of hire as you see them process where, um, you know, we would have X hiring target for the month. We would interview X amount of people, um, you know, day over day, week over week. And as we ran uh, these volume processes over time, we realized that folks that were hired later in the month were underperforming uh, folks that were hired earlier in the month, largely because we had that fixed burn down target. And when the question was, hey, do we hire this person? It became not only um, do we hire this person because they met this criterion, do we hire this person because we need to hit our targets? So we actually moved to a batch system where um, we would interview folks and set very clear expectations across the way around when we would communicate offers so that you know we'd have a three-week interviewing cycle. And then in the fourth week, we'd process um, all of our offers. And by sort of stacking all the interviews, um, week one, week two, week three, we were able to then pick the best people out of that distribution, rather than um, sort of succumbing to the pressures of time and need to fill headcount. And so there's all these little ways of optimizing uh, quality ultimately were enabled by having enough quantity to sustain that level of interviewing, that level of throughput. 
And so the, the tension for us was always uh, less of, hey, we're worried about making the wrong trade. It was more about how do we make a trade that we know we're making rather than falling pressure to this or that metric or this or that minor process detail, working backwards from, uh, you know, we want this certain level of output. We want this certain amount of people give us a lot more flexibility in terms of the how, because the how ultimately didn't matter as much as the why and the who. Makes a lot of sense. And I think, well, again, you said so, so, so much to pick apart there, which is great, makes my life really easy. But one of the things I love that you talked about is, and I'm going to reframe it slightly, maybe, but like this idea of abundance and, and a, like recruitment abundance, making strategic decisions a lot easier. I think we encounter lots of orgs where they find it, well, they sort of unintentionally tolerate mediocrity in their existing workforce, because they don't have enough quantity to displace the team they already have, if that makes sense. They find it hard to eschew their current team or to police the quality bar better because they don't have enough quality applicants or enough even quantity applicants coming through the pipeline to be able to displace that talent or replace that talent quick enough. And so like this idea of you having enough quantity to support all of the other parts of this puzzle makes loads of sense. I think one of the things that interests me is with all these sort of marginal gains that you implemented over the course of the whole recruitment stack and your whole process over that period, did your offer extension rate go up or down? So offer extension uh, rates, we would look at in terms of like the, the box and whiskers plot as a range. If our offer acceptance rate was too high, we would actually look at that as a signal of either we're as a total package uh, sort of overcompensating or um, we're doing something that's, you know, obviously potentially wrong on the talent assessment side. If it was too low, obviously we'd get the opposite signal where we're not delivering enough value or we're not communicating that value well enough, or we're not investing enough time in our candidate experience. So we would try to optimize for a range um, roughly between 75 and 85 was what we found healthy. The um, tweaks and changes along the way were definitely, um, you know, hits to that. In the same way, they were hits to our time to fill metric in terms of our ability to, we would look at it not just as uh, time to seat, but time in process. And so the longer people were in you know, our assessment stage or the longer people were in our offer stage, those were independent problems to solve and tease apart. And so for us, what we um, really focus on in terms of acceptance rate was like what's healthy and what are we willing to tolerate? And it goes back to that framing of looking as, at recruiting as growth strategy. Where you know if you have fewer people clicking on your Instagram ad and converting, um, you know, to your sneaker company, you would try to figure out like where do you want that to be, and then what do you need to do to get there. Recruiting um, ultimately is the same thing, uh, particularly at scale. It's a little bit harder to do if you've got you know two or three roles and you know you've only got so many levers to pull. But when you're hiring for several dozen or several hundred, you know the sample set is there to be able to uh, pull the levers up, down, or sideways. I want to talk about Wayfair and your other experiences in this kind of hyper growth arena in a second. But one thing that's interesting, so when we were talking about Bridgewater, you talked about like really understanding and shaping and running workshops and codifying the values that made sense for people who, who worked well at Bridgewater. I think taking the individual brand away from the equation for a second, you've gone through a number of like hyper growth journeys. The people team are exceptionally important to that talent acquisition, onboarding, L&D, yada, yada, yada. Have you identified any characteristics in your own personal experience of people who make great hyper growth people people if that makes sense like what is setting these individuals in that people team apart to enable those businesses to grow at this rate for sure definitely a couple of things you know put three out there one is just being down to clown and i say this affectionately but it's not just you know people talk about scrappiness and you know being able to do whatever it takes etc 
the down to clown metric for me has always come down to um, a comfort with ambiguity, but also a desire to get out of the ambiguity. Because if you're in uh, this sort of silly, scrappy, throw everything at the wall environment forever, you won't actually make the loops required to get out of it. And so folks that can tolerate it, but also folks that can shape it are pretty critical. The second piece is folks that are committed to that personal evolution, personal growth. And usually the the metric for that is self-awareness. So are you honest in your own um you know, view of what you can contribute, sort of how um, you can best uh, serve a company. Because ultimately, you know, if a company is growing at, you know, 100% quarter over quarter, your job will not be the same, uh, regardless of how good you are at it. It won't be the same um, if the, you know, function calls for you to be more process oriented, than more empathetic, more empathetic, than more analytical. And to folks that are willing to leave the baggage of I am this and not that at the side, or folks that are overly um, concerned on, you know, what's my job? What are my expectations? The clarity is an important part of anyone being successful in work. But ultimately, um, you have to be your own meaning making machine. You can't expect the organization to always have the ready made answer for this is what you have to do. And then the third piece, ultimately, is uh, the willingness to share. You know, one of the founders I work with talked a lot about giving away your Legos. And the challenge in hypergrowth is that you don't really know how many Legos you have, nor do you know uh, whose they are. And so folks that have uh, this primacy of really caring about what they do, but also recognition that at the end of the day, everything um, will get bigger through the collective and not through the individual. Folks that are very attached to, but you made me head of this or head of that. Ultimately, uh, that doesn't translate well to scale, where the only certainty is that there will be additional change. Yeah, so much value there. And I think that that makes sense as like a capstone for the general like high growth, high volume recruitment piece. I think I want to move on a bit and talk about this notion that you've referenced multiple times now, which is that alignment of talent strategy with kind of commercial objectives or growth, right, in general. I guess in my mind, being somewhat critical of the sort of macro audience, I'm not seeing a great deal of that. I feel feel like these two things often sit very much in isolation or at least a lot more so than they should be. What's your perspective on this in the organizations you're talking to and the people you're seeing in market? Like, is there clear alignment there? And how should organizations be sort of measuring the alignment between those two things? For sure. I agree with you. By and large, uh, it's not very clear. And usually there are very good reasons for why it's not clear. It's not just the founders are asleep at the wheel or the, you know, the investors are you know, pushing a bunch of different directions, you know, particularly for companies that are pre-product market fit. There are very real existential questions uh, day after day. And if you're still trying to figure out what your business model is and how you will serve your customer, and then it's obviously hard to have the organizational clarity around you know, these are the roles um, and values that we'll need to do that. So I think you know, when I think of uh, the clarity equation, one part of it is sort of the expectation setting. It's fine to be adrift or figuring it out as long as you're running uh, controlled hypotheses and experiments to prove that. So, hey, our hunch is that our customers will require this from us. If that's true, then what we'll need is um, these kinds of people. If it isn't, then we'll need people that are like this or like that. Is a good enough framework. I largely see the rise of you know talent and people ops in the same category as the rise of business operations at startups, where it's a while before you need you know the Bain or McKinsey consultants to come in and you know make the deck of your OKRs and your KPIs and what have you. 
but early on, um, particularly as you know, founders and people managers, you need to be able to clearly articulate you know, your portfolio and what you're um, optimizing for as a matter of doing business. And typically the challenge is less at the you know, 10, 15, 30 level. But as you're really sort of starting to ride that ramp from 30 people to 100 people to 300 people, that's when uh, the importance of clarity and communication, of writing things down, even more so in a remote environment, uh, really takes center stage. But you can't presume um, that everyone in the organization is speaking the same language. So one of the exercises that I usually run um, you know, teams through early on is what metaphors are you using to describe the organization, to describe the business, to describe this to friends? You can look at this as you know, your employee value prop development, or you could look at it as your strategy planning. But if one person's describing uh, what you're doing as X, and there's a pretty material delta between another person, then what that usually means is that you're not driving the sufficient clarity to be able to um, get people going in the same direction. And you, know, you don't have to be complicated or precious in terms of your methodology for this, but asking people to play back to you what they heard or what they're hearing and having that constant litmus test is as important as anything else to showing up to an interview and being able to tell a person what their job will actually be. That like really easy, actionable advice to help you kind of frame that in your own businesses, which is amazing. You've talked a lot here about like that answer, for example, was very much through the lens of like high growth startup, like accelerant businesses going from A to B, finding their feet, defining those things and kind of answering those foundational questions, which makes loads of sense. I guess if we try and change tack a bit and look at this more through the lens of a more traditional, established, slow growth business that's kind of ticking over or that's maintaining market position, whatever... A lot of the people we speak to in those arenas have perhaps inherited operational legacy that don't really have the level of nimbleness that they need to remain competitive in the market today. And what they're looking to do is start going in that general direction. Does the advice change for an, an organization that's not going through this hyper growth, that's not discovering itself, where the team do have alignment on this is what we are here to do, but they don't necessarily have alignment in terms of the talent strategy needed to empower that? Does the advice change or is it much the same? I think the, the common trends in the advice are largely around, you know, figure out what's working for you and what you're trying to achieve. If you're, you know, a legacy business with more uh, standard growth and you're not looking to hockey stick, but you really care about preserving uh, the culture, you care about preserving the client relationships uh, that you've already developed, what has allowed you to do that? What has enabled that? And will that continue to be forward? You know, most of the folks I talk to are like, do I need, you know, this shiny tool? Do I need a CRM? Do I need an automated messaging, marketing solution, et cetera? And most of the time, um, it's looking for um, solutions without looking for problems that drives that quest of, hey, I saw this on my LinkedIn. Um, you know, this other talent leader I talked to said I have to use this. But I think being really clear in terms of, you know, what you're solving for um, is true, whether you're in, you know, hyper growth or whether you're, you know, running a lifestyle business. And I think the second uh, big piece of sort of carryover advice that might shift is ultimately the time horizon that you're looking to make changes on. When a business is evolving as fast as um, you know, some hyper growth businesses are, the cost of not doing something is usually far greater than the cost of doing something. At uh, Bridgewater, that was very much not the case. 
you know, I still remember when we were um, running these batch interview days in New York, building a model to evaluate where do, you know, bankers and consultants live so we can have the optimal geographic interview location. And it seemed like an absurd amount of intellectual horsepower applied to a very minute tactical problem. But in our minds, um, you know, the, the intellectual discipline of doing that quality of work sort of matched to the level of intellectual discipline that we were looking uh, for in our investors, and our managers and our technologists. And so I think figure out what makes sense uh, for your business and uh, take the time to solve these problems. Because I think being limited uh, by the urgency is its own sort of hazard that leads you to, you know, potentially throw out good solutions to um, less optimal ones. And so I think part of it is just like build that, you know, fabric of creating options, uh, diagnosing uh, how they turn out and continually looping and learning. Sure. All super, super clear. I think last question on the kind of alignment of commercial objectives for talent stuff. I, I, one of the things I'm kind of critical of oftentimes is that we see pushback from senior leadership teams or we see senior leadership teams or boards or even founders viewing talent as a cost center or recruitment and people and pipeline as a cost center, like a necessary evil rather than an enabler, right? Have you seen this in the market with orgs that you're kind of been drafted in to work with or choosing to work with yourselves? And and how are you, you know, are there clear, obvious messages or educational kind of diatribes that you're giving these people, these kind of laggards to help them understand the importance of this and get out of the way of change? Definitely something I see and again, I see it a lot in sort of talent and people professionals talking about, oh, if I can get this approved or wanting a seat at the table or um, some permutation of that. Ultimately, when I take it back to first principles, um, it's sort of what objectives are you trying to accomplish and how much will that cost? I think spend is one of those interesting cultural litmus tests, um, more so than most things. So as you're you know, talking to founders, as I'm talking to founders, as folks are interviewing for jobs, getting a sense not just of, hey, um, what are you willing to spend, but more uh, fundamentally, how do you think about growth? How do you think about objectives um, from the perspective of, will I do anything to make this higher? In most cases, the answer is no. Versus, will I do you know 5K? Will I do 10K um, to close this higher? One of the exercises I usually run folks through is like, let's talk about your organizational objectives, then let's talk about your headcount strategy, then let's talk about you know what it'll back of the napkin cost to get there. Because one of the um, things I've realized is like, as um, you know, marketing leaders or growth leaders go out, they're not asking the questions of you know, can I spend this amount of money to run this ad? Can I try this new campaign uh, to generate X revenue? It's more of a question of, hey, we want to get to this number. This is how we'll get there. And even framing the question from that perspective of like, no, I won't just open this one role. I won't just open this other role. I won't just open this third role. And framing it from, let's talk about you know six months. Let's talk about a year out. And then let's model forward the capacity gaps and the capability gaps that we have to get there gives you a much cleaner sense rather than going back ad hoc for, can I get this texting tool? Can I get this marketing solution? Can I get this thing? Because all of that is largely incidental when it comes to, you know, would you pay X additional to reduce time to fill by a third? Would you pay X to have a more diverse pipeline, et cetera? Amazing. L- loads of advice on how to reframe that conversation and kind of move that forward, which is awesome. I think as we start to head towards the wrap up, I'd like keen to dig into the stuff that you're doing today and the role you're playing in the market as a sort of talent advisor and investor, right? Like at that sort of macro level, how are you seeing talent trends and investment trends aligning, right? Like how is venture evolving to kind of support that? I appreciate it. Spending a lot of time uh, thinking about this recently. 
at a high level, um, when you think of the venture landscape today, you know, the broad theme is that capital is cheap. On one end, you have the Sequoias or the Andreessen's um, that have done phenomenal work over the years, building up their reputation, both as a source of capital, but as a source of portfolio support. And on the other end, you have the soft banks, the Tigers, the D1s that are able to um, be, you know, affectionately the Walmart of capital and give you, you know, the best value for the best price. And in between, you have 80 to 85% of the venture landscape that is struggling to figure out, do I compete on value or do I compete on speed and cost? What you see emerging in that middle is the rise of service organizations, be they um, search firms like Oxion or Intersection, actually uh, amassing capital and deploying that into the companies that they're working with. Or you see organizations like BCG um, with Capital B offering discounted services to their portfolio as a means of adding the value that will get them allocation. And the piece within that triangle, whether it's you know all the Diversa and Riviera partners being poached up by these um, various venture firms, or um, you know services businesses raising capital themselves, is that it comes down to the talent. And I think increasingly, as you see um, the democratization of direct capital, whether it's um, platforms like Republic or Forge or Carta that are allowing um, more secondary market liquidity, or whether it's um, more broadly the evolution of you know executives joining companies, not just expecting equity for joining, but expecting to be able to put capital in uh, through you know their limited partnerships or through angel networks such as the Gangels or otherwise. You start seeing this trend line of talent really being the thing that is of value, not just the capital. And so I'm really interested in uh, seeing more employees, executives, and otherwise really sort of demand that share of value rather than seeing that go to traditional institutional uh, VCs because the um, value of the individual is increasing as well as the value of the collective. And across both sides, I think there's a really uh, unique platform and a unique pathway to disintermediate some of the historical um, institutions by which founders get capital. Lots to unpack there and all very, very interesting with regards to, well, democratization of capital is, is an interesting thing, right? Like, because we, we see that in the VC and the venture space and people having more opportunity to go direct through syndicates or republics or crowdfunding or insert X vehicle here. We also see that in terms of things like masterworks on the art fund side, fine wine investments and all of the other kind of players, which is a fantastic thing for a myriad of reasons, right? Like, if we hone in on that as the the sort of thing to wrap up on in terms of like how the the market is evolving, and I thought it was interesting that you kind of identified the tigers and the soft banks on the the one side deploying cheap capital, and you know the Andreessen's and Sequoias and otherwise with the knowledge and the, and the operational play. The people in the middle, surely, if they're still trying to decide which of the two they are, they're kind of going to fail at either, right? Like, how easy is it for somebody to decide to be an operational value add VC? Like, that's very difficult to do, surely, right? Totally. Yeah. And I, I think it's a real challenge when you think about the ultimately the people and the capabilities that you need to bring to bear. You see proliferation of these talent partner roles of you know platform uh, roles providing anything from product support to go to market to um, you know even design services. And ultimately, I think that what that does is it puts even more value in the hands of the operators that are doing that work. Because now your bid option is not just, hey, I'm going to take a 100% levered bet on this startup. It's, hey, I can have the same diversification as a venture investor without putting you know, my own capital or raising capital at risk. I can sort of command this you know, return profile for being able to provide this service. 
And I think, you know, if you play that forward a couple of steps, I'm really interested in saying how do individuals get more capital behind them, and particularly individuals from historically underrepresented groups. I'm doing a little bit of work now uh, with partners in terms of creating different kinds of syndicates and SBVs um, with organizations that you know are pioneering um, sort of diversity and affinity in their own work. And what I'm finding is that founders, hire managers, leaders want access to this talent. And the best way to give access is to you know give allocation because ultimately that's sort of the you know first principle of who wins in this game. If all your investors look like me, like other sort of white males, what have you, then your challenge is going to be in getting that access. Your challenge increasingly, if you're you know successful as a founder, as a executive, what have you, is not going to be to get the capital. So you should be willing to invest you know your most precious resource of equity in your company into the long play to building that affinity and building that relationship more broadly. Sure. No, that makes sense. It's like the VCs are going and working very hard either on the operational side or with cheap to have access to allocation and to have access to deal flow and capital. And I guess it's just the same in reverse, right? Organizations are in turn taking that cheap capital and deploying it into the right individuals to get allocation and access to a pool of talent that they wouldn't otherwise see. And so that makes so much sense. And I think an awesome place to wrap up, right? I think Arthur, thank you so much. Like Everybody listening has either learned a lot from Arthur or they've not been listening. So thank you so, so much for your time today. I think if you're interested in learning more and just listening to Arthur continue to talk about all of these things, check him out on LinkedIn. We'll put a link to Arthur's LinkedIn in the show notes. And from me, all there is left to say is for more great tales from the trenches and best practice people guidance, please stay tuned to The Talent Revolution. We've got more great guests just like Arthur coming every Tuesday. Go ahead and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for listening and thank you very much, Arthur. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, everyone. Appreciate it.